Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now: michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 19th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Two and a half thousand members of Fine Gael were at the City West in Dublin this weekend for the party's national convention. Tax cuts were the big ticket item, with the Taoiseach Leo Vradker telling delegates that uh, Fine Gael would make tax cuts over the next five years so that by that time a single earner would earn €50,000 and a double income couple €100,000 before paying the higher rate of income tax. Brexit, housing, broadband, Christmas holidays for health workers and how victims of sexual assault are Treated in court were all topics of note, but many minds seem to be on the next general election. Finnegan ministers say they are election ready, and our political correspondent Sean Defoe was there for us. Where you heard the Taoiseach say, Sean, uh, that there won't be a snap general election. We kind of expected there wouldn't be an election before Christmas just because the arithmetic was so tight, and we talked about that last week even if he came back from the European summit at the end of this week and said right we're going up to the park you'd be voting the week before Christmas which isn't ideal in anyone's book and I don't think any politician was relishing the chance of going around different shopping centres as people were Mm. stocking up for Christmas goods and trying to get their vote Uh, but there was a big buzz of an election around the the Fine Gael Ardes this weekend a lot of ministers quite bullish saying that yeah you know what we're ready for it we're good Mm. to go the Charlie Flanagan said well the posters aren't printed the printing machines are well oiled you know they were very much in a mood of being prepared for this and I think it was probably as much about putting things up to Fianna Fáil to try and get progress on the confidence supply talks than it was about actually having an election but for now it looks though it won't be before Christmas anyway maybe sometime early in the new year. And a, a leader's speech for that matter that sounded uh, like uh, the beginning of launching an election campaign. It was. Leo is interesting when he gives a speech he's not this kind of you know and a Kenny type where there'd be fist banging and there'd be, you know, or Michael Ring say where it's really rally the troops kind of around. He's much more calm. His delivery is a little bit dead at times, but the really big promise in his speech was the changes to the tax rules, which is a, a big election promise if ever I saw one where the higher, the entry point for the higher rate of tax would be raised, he said, over the next five years if Fine Gael are in power from 35,000 as it is at the moment up to 50,000 and that, like, that would be a huge financial benefit to the type of people he's clearly after which is the middle income earners and the higher middle income earners for example if you earn 50,000 euro uh, it would be worth to you uh, 60 euro a week around 3 grand a year which is a very significant promise to go and make so there was also a sense of right we there might be an election right now but there's one coming and we need to start dialing with the promises 
Okay, but it, it won't help the low paid in any way whatsoever, and it won't build houses. No, it won't. And this is the other side of the argument. I mean, Fine Gael have said that in all their budget planning, you know, we're going to be prudent here, we're going to invest in houses, we're going to invest in everything else we need to. And in particular, they've stressed broadening the tax base because our, our tax system is really reliant on corporation tax rates at the moment. And I think it's something like four or ten companies pay 70 or 80 percent of that. It, it is quite narrow. If one of those, if an Apple or a Google or a Facebook was to leave Ireland, would be in quite a bit of trouble financially. So I thought it was, it was quite out of filter with what they said previously about broadening the tax base, that they were going to suddenly take a huge amount of people out of it. And what it would be worth is about €3 billion Euro a year to the economy from 2024, from where we are now, that we would have less to spend on, on public services. And also, it doesn't help anyone who's on a lower wage. They won't benefit in any way. So it's clear that Fine Gael are going somewhat back to their roots of helping out the, the middle class and the upper middle class that traditionally used to support uh, the party, although they will argue that the average wage is now significantly higher than it used to be. And I think there is a general agreement, the point at which people enter the higher rate of tax is too low as it is. Bringing up to 50,000 is quite a, a significant change and would be over the next few years. But in terms of services, I think a lot of people would be happier if we had better public transport, we had better housing services, if the HSE was not an absolute omni-shambles, if you could choose the money to do those things instead. Okay, well, maybe not the way Fine Gael sees it, uh, and uh, I'm sure they know their constituency, and indeed, I'm sure they are looking at the next general election, whenever that may be. Uh, but uh, the Taoiseach was talking about the agreement that the government has with Fianna Fáil at the moment, this confidence and supply agreement, which keeps them in office, uh, and that he'd like that renegotiated, that it could be done in a weekend. But he, he didn't sound like somebody who was cozying up to Michal Mark. No, there was uh, very little cozying done from the Fine Gael point of view. There were speeches lambasting Fianna Fáil, really going back to attacking them for the, the crisis that they created back in the, the noughties, which is kind of ironic when they're now making big tax promises. But anyway, uh, and quite a bit of, like the ministers that were out over the weekend were piercing. I mean, Simon Harris uh, talked to us and he accused them of, uh, accused the fall of sniping over Brexit. He accused them of uh, of not playing ball. Had a real, real go at Micheál Martin. So there was no sense of cozying up. I think what the Fine Gael strategy this weekend was, was to point out that, you know what, we're not afraid of an election wherever it comes. We don't want one right now. But if you don't move on, because the conference flight talks have been so stalled and taking so long a time because Fianna Fáil want this really in-depth review... So they were very much putting it up to them, saying, all right, if you're not going to agree to anything, you're not going to sign up to anything, let's go to the people, let's put a bit of pressure on here. So that was absolutely done over the weekend, and while the teacher said he doesn't want an immediate election, there was certainly no olive branch or no you know, kindness mm. shown to Micheál Martin, although he, he did quit this. He was delighted to see that Fianna Fáil was the main subject of the Fianna Fáil, of the Fianna Gael Ardet at the weekend, so I don't think he was taking it too much to heart either. Although he did describe some of the comments as being juvenile. He did. He did. He described them as being juvenile and hit back out. And his argument was that, look, we've already... Because the, the main thing again, the point is that we need stability here. If, mm. if the government is going to work and go and go ahead, ministers need stability, they need to know their brief. And Michal Martin pointed out, well, he's already offered them stability until after Brexit. There is an offer on the table, which Jesus Cousin replied to, that he would not... No one would call an election until after Brexit is sorted, that whatever deal is passed in the Commons if Theresa May can somehow mm. find the numbers to actually do that. So he, his argument was that, and that Fianna Fáil has actually been quite responsible in the last few years by facilitating this government, by 
letting them have some sort of stability when there is a minority situation up until after Brexit and while all these things are sorted out. So the two sides very much of different views. Whether or not we're going to see a deal is, is another question. I think if all there's no chance that they will sign up to the two-year extension that Taoiseach is seeking, and mm-hmm. I think again know that as well. They would be hopeful to get maybe another year out of it or just dial it on a little later, but certainly it doesn't look like the sides are any closer after this weekend, if anything more far apart uh, from reaching a deal. Yeah, well, no doubt uh, Taoiseach Vradker will impart all of that to Lorraine whoever Lorraine is, uh, you were talking about uh, his uh, ability as a speaker and he can be somewhat stilted and it sounded a little bit odd when he tried to personalise it uh, by talking about some member of the party called Lorraine who was curious about the confidence and supply agreement. Yeah, there was uh, that was littered throughout the speech that he tried to use this style of saying, oh, I spoke to Lorraine earlier and I spoke to Jim who was concerned about Brexit and I spoke to Mark the farmer. And it just didn't work. You could tell these people don't exist. And as he wasn't actually taught from it was all part of the speech. And it was something the probably Enda Kenny used actually quite a lot where he would have said that, you know, to show he was in touch with the grassroots that he's talking to everybody. But Enda Kenny was a, a better orator. And, and that's uh, not something I ever thought I would describe to him as one of his main talents. But he, he was then <laughs> when he was giving a speech. Dan Leo Varadkar, he's just, it's not his, his strength while he's very assured in his delivery and he's not particularly exciting about it and it was just a, a rhetorical trick read that didn't particularly work for him during the speech. Mm, yeah, and his speech writers uh, I take it. Uh, there's been some concern as well about uh, slogan writers for Fine Gael, keep the recovery going and all of that. Taking Ireland forward together is to be the next Fine Gael slogan I believe. Yeah, it really rolls off the tongue doesn't it? Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> perhaps... I had to read it, I have to say. Yeah, I have it written here in front of me because I'd never remember it. Yeah, no, you, you wouldn't. Uh, it's not exactly one that bounces off the tongue, and I imagine it's one that's going to be rethought before the election proper because it's not particularly grabbing. They seem to have a problem with slogans. Keep the recovery going was an absolute disaster, but this one is, uh, while not as antagonistic, it just, you know, people are mm. never going to stick in the high. It's never, not bringing Ireland together or whatever else you know, might come up with. So I'd imagine there'll be a bit of reworking of that in Mount Street over the next couple of months. It was the name they put on their new document, which was the expanding of this Republic of Opportunity that Taoiseach has been working on, which was actually a good saying, Republic of Opportunity kind of rolled up the tongue and could be interpreted in many different ways. And they tried to change that. I think maybe they should have just stuck with it and, and tried to work it out. But I think mm-hmm. before the it won't be put on too much election literature, I would imagine. All right. Uh, the Taoiseach was asked about the Christmas holidays for healthcare staff and uh, he had been misunderstood it seemed last time when he made that terrible gaffe uh, he was also speaking about uh, how sexual assault victims are treated in court following on uh, from uh, that barrister's uh, comments uh, to a 17 year old girl uh, about uh, wearing a, a thong or to the jury about her wearing a, a thong uh, and has said that that'll be looked at Yes, there's a review underway at the moment by uh, Tom O'Malley, who's an expert in in law and NUIG, and he is looking at the way these things are handled in court. So very much the government this weekend, when we were asked about that, kicking it to touch, saying it will go into the review. That's due before Christmas. But uh, interestingly, I spoke to Regina Doherty over the weekend about it, and she said it can't be one of those cases where we get a review and then it goes nowhere for a year. There needs to be action on it pretty, pretty quickly. So uh, no government minister was, was... exactly lining up to say what they would do they all agreed and their slogan was as they went out, that it's not mm. the 
woman's fault, it's not because of the clothes they wear, it's the fault of rapists, so people get raped, and so that needs to be looked at, and certainly the way these things are handled in court needs to be looked at. So we'll, we'll see if there is actually anything out of that review and what they could do. It's interesting, in the UK they have non-statutory guidelines for judges, so that judges can say to, or warn a jury beforehand, these are some of the things that might be brought up, but you're not to consider them in your deliberation, so that might be something they look at bringing in here. There's a couple of other interesting bits, particularly mm. on, the, on the sexual assault, like Mr. Charlie Sanigan said that uh, confirmed the Savvy 2 report this mm. week, a report that was done in 2002 into sexual violence, very, very in-depth. It's now considered out of date, but he's confirmed he's bringing plans to Cabinet for another one to be drawn up over the next two years, which I think a lot of campaigners will welcome. They've been saying that's needed for a long time. And in some of the other issues that were, were raised, there's quite a few of them, broadband, Brexit, mm. but also uh, Minister Joe McHugh confirmed the Department of Education is going to review the decision to uh, make junior search history an optional subject. There's been quite a bit of backlash to that, saying the children need to know the history of the country, they need to know the history of the world. You're doomed to repeat your mistakes unless you know how they've happened before, as a lot of people would say. So I think that was one that was quite welcome as well. Okay, a relatively upbeat Finnegala, I take it. Uh, but if there were clouds gathering outside, uh, there were Brexit clouds, and uh, this morning five British ministers are meeting to try to uh, agree a way of renegotiating this deal or draft deal as it may be. If that's tried, it would seem as though the whole thing will fall apart. Uh, And as you say, Brexit uh, was one of uh, the topics discussed quite often over the weekend and the Taoiseach saying that a a no-deal scenario would not necessarily mean a hard border. No, there was a lot of talk about over the weekend. Interestingly, a lot of the Finnegan members, the regular members I talked to, the reason they don't want an election right now is because of Brexit, and that was something I found kind of across the weekend, which was interesting. But in terms of this renegotiation and the British ministers who seem to think someone else or even them can go and get a better deal, Simon Coveney utterly dismissed that on Friday night, said it was it was off the table. Uh, his exact words, I think, was this is what Brexit looks like, and people need to start accepting that and there isn't going to be any wholesale changes made on the EU, on the EU side. Maybe there could be some tweaks. So that idea already seems to be out the window. In terms of a hard border, the Taoiseach initially kind of has been warning that if there is no deal, we might return to some sort of infrastructure. He rode back from that a little bit, but was also saying, look, you know, there's no guarantees in a no-deal scenario. We don't know what that looks like. It's never happened before a country leaves the EU, so we really don't know what's going to happen. And it was interesting, I was speaking to Heather Humphreys, who is obviously from the border region, uh, TD for there, and she said, you know what, if there, if there is a no-deal and some sort of infrastructure, some sort of checks have to go up, there is a real risk of a return to violence, because you put up a camera and then someone attacks the camera, and then you have to put someone to guard the camera from the people attacking it and it all starts to escalate like that so there's a huge amount of question marks over what will happen if there's an deal. will there be a border who will police it who will enforce it and really until we get something signed off on from the UK side I don't think we're any clearer to how that will all unfold Our political correspondent Sean Defoe speaking to me before we came on air today Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Daily Mail reported last week that over 50,000 motorists have been caught using their phones while driving in the course of the past two years. They estimate that this is the equivalent of 68 people caught using their phone while driving on a daily basis. Tony Toner, driving instructor with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland, is on the line. Good morning, Tony. Thanks for joining us, as always. Uh, The story in the paper last week was talking about people talking on the phone, taking selfies, live streaming, and checking out things like Facebook and Twitter. 
it's it's bringing the living room straight into the car in a big way. Um, you know, it you know effectively it shouldn't be happening. Um, but people are people, and uh, this is what they do until they're stopped, or until something occurs that um, brings them under notice. Uh, and invariably, that's a collision. And um, we must realise today, Michael, that the, the, one of the first things that will happen in, in, in a collision uh, is that the phone can be uh, looked at and if it geolocates you to the place of the collision and you've been on the internet, on the phone or whatever, it, you know, it can, can be produced as evidence. When is it uh, illegal to be on your phone? It's illegal to have the phone in your hand. In your hand, Just yeah. be honest. Mm. Be, you have it in your hand. Mm. You can be honest as long as it's hands-free. Mm. And most cars today have, a, a, you know, a very, very competent mm. hands-free facility. They have voice activation. There's mm. a little um, logo on the on the steering wheel of a car of a person's face, effectively, ahead. And if you press that and you ask the car to, to turn on LMFM, mm. it will turn on LMFM for you. You don't even have to go looking, searching, pressing a button, nothing. And all this AI that is out there uh, in small little dribbles at the moment, artificial intelligence, that's coming in now, Michael. Uh, uh, the vast majority of modern cars that people are looking at now, maybe for the January market, when you plug your uh, Android phone in or you plug your iPhone in, to, to the charge system on the car, it immediately come up on the centre screen mm. that your your you 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 know all your um, you're effectively home page in your phone is mm. now up on the screen, and uh, you can activate all of that mm. from device activation. And, and, and m- m- many of the smartphones are voice activated anyway, and they'll ring True. people or text people for you uh, without uh, needing a, a secondary device on the car to do it. Uh, but that's not illegal, is it? I, I mean, I wonder if, uh, to some degree, uh, the story in the mail last week was misleading in that it underestimates the problem. I think when they're talking about people taking selfies or streaming behind the wheel uh, and receiving fixed fines uh, for that, uh, it's because they were caught with it in their hand, is it? Absolutely. This is this is what's happening, uh, unfortunately. Um, and while, as I say, that the, the car can become part of your lifestyle, you've chosen mm. it, you have it, um, you know, set the way you want it inside. The seat, as I said before in your program, it takes your imprint the minute you sit into it. The, the steering wheel feels your steering wheel. The radio stations are yours. It is your mobile living room. But you're out there driving in a, in a motorised environment with other people who are walking, cycling, mm. other vehicles, the whole nine yards. And um, but, but it doesn't matter what you're doing, does it? Concentration to do this. If you're hands-free, it doesn't matter what you're doing, as long as the phone is in a cradle, you can ring somebody. That's not illegal, sure it's not? That is not illegal, but you mm. should be very mindful, Michael, that uh, the only difference really between uh, hands-free and being on the phone mm. uh, is one hand. Mm. That's, that, that, you know, but uh, you're not going to get fined. The required mm. to hold the call is mm. the same whether you're hands-free or not. Well, I, I suppose that's where I'm going with this. Uh, sh- should it be uh, treated in the same way or, or not? Because uh, there's nothing stopping you from making a phone call so long as it's hand-free. Uh, there's nothing stopping you from texting somebody so long as it's hands-free or WhatsApping somebody if it's hands-free. 
That is true. You can do all that via the artificial mm. intelligence in the car. Uh, you can play your music or check, check Facebook. Uh Yes, but like the the one thing I say, Michael, is that there is anything you do in the car, mm. uh, from going in this morning and and going to your local um, Circle K and getting your fuel and then buying a cup of their finest brew and getting into the car with it. If the act of having that in your hand and driving the car renders your ability to drive that car as deficient, you can be. Um, taken, pulled in, having a chat with. Mm. And yes, you could be prosecuted for failing to have proper control over the vehicle. Mm. And there's quite an amount of people out there, Michael, who can ring in now and tell you that, yeah, I had a coffee and, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, what's the first thing they'll do, Michael, when um, they need to do something with that, with that hand? Mm. They'll put the coffee down between the legs. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, hot coffee, when it uh, it's one thing going into your mouth, it's, it can be it can be warm. It's scalding if it hits the family jewels, I can tell you. And I'm not speaking from experience here, by the way. <laughs> okay. But I have, we have, I have loads of anecdotal evidence mm. from uh, the paramedic service here in Ireland that we work very closely with. Yeah, and I suppose the fear of it alone is enough to make you react in a, a way uh, that could be dangerous and yeah. cause you to swerve or whatever the case may be. But when it comes to your telephone, it's one thing having it in your hand, uh, and another thing if it's up on the windscreen. Uh, should that be the case? Um, anything that, again, takes away from your ability mm. to control the car, and the phone... Well, you'd have to assume it does, wouldn't you? I mean, when you hear... When you hear uh, our, uh, the Lewis operator is talking about people walking in front of trams because they're looking at their phones. Uh, they can't even hear a train coming, in other words. Uh, hardly the thing to be doing when you're driving. Michael, uh, you know, I live here in, and I go through Dublin City on a regular basis. Um, it, is, it, is, it is shocking to see mm. how pedestrians are uh, big earphones on them, all that stuff, and they're quite entitled to listen to music, but it takes away one of their primary senses, etc. Uh, and you do see people driving cars with them as well. Mm. But the big thing about, like, the phone is one of the targeted issues that is cognitive by its nature in terms of it demands a huge amount of mental concentration to hold the call, hold the content of the call, and make your points thereafter, as distinct from those people being in the car with you. Uh, And this is well proven. Mm. So what we've got to do is we have to be responsible. Um, And unfortunately, we're not... I suppose, stepping up to the mark in that regard. Uh, and what if somebody sends you a, a video or you want to watch a, a film? You can do that in the car if it's hands-free, can you? Uh, no, no, an awful lot of the cars, no. That is disabled once the car's in motion. Mm. Um, like, you know, there, there's, there's, there's cars available for oh, many years now with a, a TV facility built into the um, into the centre console, mm. but it, it only operates when uh, the, the car is uh, static. Yeah, but now. if you have your smartphone uh, working uh, on its own, uh, not connected to the devices in the car, apart from the auxiliary lead, which will give you volume, uh, you can put a film on, or if somebody sends you a video, there's nothing illegal about that if it's hands-free. Uh, I don't think it is listed in, in mm. terms of one of the, the things, but uh, again, I go back, Michael, if... Um, if you're spotted watching, uh, effectively, 
you know, a video or a program on the thing as you're driving, uh, you'd have some explaining to do if you were brought to the big house. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, and, and it is ridiculous to even think about it now that somebody could be watching, you know, uh, something like that and going. And there's more and more cars, Michael, now coming with uh, a Wi-Fi facility mm. as part of the car. And you, you, you'll you get uh, maybe six months or a year of uh, when you buy the car that the car is its own Wi-Fi hotspot. Mm. Uh, so all this stuff is, is, is only going to increase in our lives. It is up to us to manage it and ensure that when we go out in the car, that, you know, the concentration required to drive the car is not diminished to the point where, um, you know, we think we can catch up on, on the local trends on Facebook as we drive along. Mm. I mean, or, or generate content on Facebook. Uh, I mean, this seems to be one of the things that people are doing. Uh, they put the phone up on the windscreen and start making a, a film of themselves and stream it live, like uh, broadcasting on television. They're streaming it on Facebook and, hello, how are you doing? The weather is lovely and I'm driving into Navin today and uh, you can comment on me and how well my driving is below. Uh, and this is the sort of thing that's going on. Yep. Uh, and that's only going to increase uh, because the... Like the advent of uh, smart cameras in cars as well, uh, you know, the, uh, dash cams, etc. Mm-hmm. This is this is it's all it's it's an industry on its own, um, and you know, is some of it is not subject to legislation at the moment. But the one line in legislation there, Michael, that's there for anything, whether you're eating an apple, eating a bag of popcorn, if anything you're doing in the car. Uh, detracts from your ability to keep proper control on that vehicle, you could be prosecuted for that. Mm. And I, I suppose it, it comes down to all of us personally and individually to decide that we're going to do everything to ensure that not just ourselves are safe when we go out on the road, that uh, nobody else is at risk. Without question. Um, you know, when it, you know if, you, if you wind back... Um, the tape, as the fellow says, from the, the, the bump that people have. Mm. If they could have not done what they've done um, by fiddling with their phone or trying to send a message or something like that, texting or whatever while driving, um, and not cause the collision, they'd, they'd do that in, in literally in a heartbeat. Um, collisions on our roads are a very, very serious thing. They're traumatic physically, financially and psychologically to people, uh, as well as disrupting a huge amount of people on their daily transit up up a, up a, up a road or whatever. But nobody wants to be involved in, in, a, in a collision. And we should be doing anything we can to avoid that. Um, I said the comfort factor we have with our smart devices mm-hmm. and with our car, the integration of both of those, uh, if it's taken away from our driving, and um, you know we have to manage that. And um, we, you know, it is down to driver responsibility. Food for thought for everybody. Thanks for that, Tony, and thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Tony Toner, driving instructor with uh, the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The UK's withdrawal agreement uh, from the European Union should be finalised at an EU Council summit uh, this coming Sunday. Today, uh, the ministers are meeting in Brussels and in London. Five British ministers are meeting, hoping to change 
the word of the wording of the draft agreement. Excuse me, Brendan Smith is Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan and chairman of the Oireachtas Foreign Affairs Committee. He joins us now and good morning to you and thanks for joining us. It's going to be a long week, a hard week for Mrs May, but undoubtedly a hard week for everybody involved in all of this. Where do you think it's going? Well, Mrs May obviously has her difficulties in Parliament. She's even she's had serious difficulties within her own cabinet, within her own party, and then in Parliament. And over the weekend, listening to some commentary on the radio as one travelled around, um, um, there was a lot of attacks, a lot of negativity towards Mrs May. But I have to say, she's been very resilient. She's been gritty. And I've heard people make um, very positive comments about her, about her efforts to, to get this withdrawal agreement agreed. I sincerely hope that Parliament will support her. And there's talk of five members of her cabinet trying to get changes. I don't think there can be changes at this stage because um, then Michelle Barney would have to go back to the other 27 member states of the European Union. When you start to renegotiate uh, on a a strategy, on an agreement that has been in negotiation for um, almost two years, then you could start to see other parts of it unravelling. We sincerely hope that sense will prevail in the House of Commons and that Mrs May gets her agreement to go on to the next phase of the negotiations. It seems an odd move for the ministers to make now, doesn't it, given that it has cabinet approval? There's such a thing as cabinet collective responsibility. And Mrs May, when she walked out of 10 Downing Street to announce to the media that her cabinet had agreed um, the withdrawal agreement last, um, was it Tuesday or Wednesday, whichever day, she was very clear and she said a collective decision had been made. Now, those five ministers, they were in the cabinet at that time. They were part of that collective decision. And I can't see the sense that it makes now that they are trying to get some alteration to that agreement but then you had you, have, you, have, you haven't got a lot of stability in the opposition parties either I saw some comments attributed to Mr Corbyn the leader of the main opposition party the Labour Party and the person who would be seen as an alternative Prime Minister if there was a change of government a change of party leading government where he talked about maybe changes to the withdrawal agreement during the transition process so that's nonsense altogether because the, it's the agreement it's the withdrawal agreement allows you to go to the next phase of the future EU-British relationships. So if that's the type of leadership that's being given both at opposition party level and at government level, then you would have to have your concerns. I just, in some very well, long-standing um, members of, of, of the House, Houses of mm. Commons, some of them who would not be the biggest fans of Mrs May or that, have appealed for CAM, they have appealed for support for her for her position when it comes to a vote in Parliament. Um, we hope that she gets it through. Nat- naturally, um, the worst of all worries for us in particular would be if Britain left the European Union without a deal. Then it would create serious problems for us. It would be bad for Britain. It would be even worse for all of this island. What do you think is going to happen? I don't know, and, and nobody knows. I'm sure. Uh, I'd love to think that the that the process, mm, as it as is, as we all would, of course, yes, yes. Mm. But it's very hard to mm. know what's the, what's the internal politics in the 
political parties in Britain. I always thought that prior to the referendum in 2016, if you, if the Labour Party at that time had to be seen as an alternative government, which they weren't at that particular stage, and if they had to take uh, the route of opposition to the whole Leave referendum, then that would not have been carried at that particular time. But we know that uh, I know quite a number of senior Labour uh, MPs, Conservatives, and Liberal Democrats, and they will tell you pr- privately that mm. that um, within their own parties there's confusion, there's division, and that's in the public domain now as well. So it's it's an unsettling time in British politics, and again we can be the collateral damage, and that's what I fear. Like we we want to see a strong British economy. Our economies are mm. are so closely linked. When you think of the of the level of bilateral trade on a, on a on a on an annual basis between both of our countries, Britain's our nearest neighbour. It's a it's a huge market for us. You take in the agri food sector, the thirty eight percent of our agri food goods go to Britain. It's a near market, and alongside that, Britain is a, is a very very important land bridge for us to get our products to other countries in Europe and to other destinations outside Europe. When you think of the, of our trade, mm. our goods, our goods both coming to Ireland and exports leaving Ireland that go through the Welsh ports in particular, and then tra- tra- traverse England and on to other ports to to be forwarded on to ports in Europe, maybe for distribution within the European Union or elsewhere. So there are huge I know, but this downsides. Day, but this us. day next week, we might be talking about what World Trade Organization rules will mean in reality. Well, we sincerely hope not, and we know what they are. The World Trade Organization tariffs are particularly um, high in mm. regard to agri-food products. You take the immediate area that you that your listenership comprises of Loudmead and parts of Cavan and Monaghan and my own constituency at Cavan Monaghan, and then think of our neighbours in, in Fermanagh, Tyrone and Armagh. We have all economies that are very heavily dependent on the agri-food sector, the construction product sector and the engineering sector. They are the sectors that are most heavily dependent on the British, on the Northern Ireland market and the British market. Take the agri-food sector. Mm. Um, we have so much, so much food products go overnight to Britain. They're on the shelves the next day uh, to be fresh. Um, and it's in many instances, it would it would be very difficult to transport some of those food products to to further sure. destinations. Now, the problem about it is as well, if Britain doesn't have an agreement with the EU, then the European Union will be demanding that the territorial integrity of the customs union must be protected that mean what does that mean then between us and northern ireland mm. that's a very serious difficulty that's staring us if there's not an agreement and of course mm. well, it means we a hard border agree. undoubtedly but uh, uh, perhaps these conversations are premature uh, and uh, let's uh, hope they are well, yes. well, I, well it's one of the options in terms of what we might be talking about this day next week but we might also be talking about uh, that leadership contest uh, the possibility of a, a general election in the United Kingdom uh, a people's vote or a, a second referendum yeah, well, Mr. Blair, and I have huge regard for Tony Blair in regard to what he did for our country, working alongside Bertie Hurton and the other political parties in Northern Ireland, Britain, and in Ireland. Um, I have huge regard for him. He has been very much a champion of another referendum from the early days. But from my limited, I have to say, and fairly substantial interaction, probably, along with other colleagues in the Oireachtas and the Dáil and Shannon, with British parliamentarians, that I know quite a number of people who are totally anti 
Brexit mm. in both the Labour and Conservative Party, they will say to me no later than a week ago that there will not be another referendum. And, and, and they are not convinced that if there was another referendum that the people would vote to remain. So that's from people who are very strong proponents of Britain remaining in the European Union. But there's one other thing, Michael, and those of us who, who were born and reared and have the privilege of representing border counties is that from the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, there has been other positives that you cannot measure in economic terms in regard to the normalisation of Irish society, particularly in our area, that flowed from the Good Friday Agreement. All of that happened incrementally. The lifting of the checkpoints, the increase of business on a north-south basis, the establishment of all Ireland companies, like companies that were traditionally either located or had only a base in the south or in the north. A lot of those companies today have sites, have enterprises, both sides of the border, so much has happened in an all-Ireland context since 1998 that we often don't measure into our economy, into our economy mm-hmm. but it was hugely important. And that was underpinned by our joint membership of the European Union. That would be damaged as well. OK, well, we'll be hearing from the DUP a, a little bit later in the programme. We'll leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you indeed. Uh, Brendan Smith is a TD for Cavan Monaghan and... Uh, uh, the chairman of the Oireachtas Foreign Affairs Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Sean from Drogheda is one of those listeners and he contacted us uh, in relation to the Fine Gael Ardesh over the weekend. He says, I'm a Fianna Fáil member all my life and I'm disgusted by Fine Gael's attitude towards Fianna Fáil, especially over the weekend. It's time that Micheál Martin stopped propping this lot up. We've kept them in government for too long, says Sean, and they don't seem to have any respect for our party. OK. Well, I don't know. I think the Taoiseach was... Uh tempted to invite Fianna Fáil. <laughs> Rage from Drogheda says that Fine Gael seem to think they are indestructible but they may be surprised when they go to the country because, says Mairead, not everyone is reaping the rewards of the upturn in the country's fortunes but the party for the rich is not in touch with those who are struggling on the ground. Mm, they may be surprised Mairead. and they may not be surprised and I suppose that's the gamble all of the parties have to take when they look into an election. Seamus Dog says that Fine Gael showed its true colours at the weekend talking about extending the tax threshold for the top rate of tax to €50,000. What about the people on the bottom end of the scale? Mm. Would it not be better to scrap the USC and that way everyone would benefit? No. They did talk about that before, mm. didn't they? One no, stage. well, they did, yeah. It was one of that's those one of the points Fianna Fáil was making over the weekend, uh, that that was their promise. Uh, can you believe any promise and all that sort of stuff? But uh, no, uh, I, I think uh, the point Fine Gael, uh, is making, and it's a Fine Gael point, not mine, uh, is that, uh, no, you don't uh, scrap the USE to benefit low earners or reduce the lower rate of income tax to benefit low earners as well. It's because those who are on 50,000, the squeezed middle, uh, end up paying for everything and get nothing. 
Liam from Navan says that Fine Gael looks to me to be a party on election footing. I'd say all they want now, Michael, is for Fianna Fáil to pull the plug so that they can blame Fianna Fáil for an election. Mm, it's either that or a mince pie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd imagine uh, after the mince pies, uh, we'll be looking at an election. Jacqueline phones in and Jacqueline says the same thing. He thinks that once Christmas is over and the Brexit is sorted, well, we could be waiting a while for that, that... Fine Gael will go to the polls. That mm. It's really uh, staring people in the face at this stage. He said you could really see it, he felt, from the coverage of the Ardesh mm. over the weekend. Yeah. Okay. But, but that's yeah. what all the yeah. TDs Maybe are not, thinking. but uh, I think uh, there's a strong feeling that uh, it'll be sooner rather than later. Joanne says it's a pity Fine Gael are more concerned with raising tax and giving breaks to those that are earning big money than to tackling the housing and hospital crisis in the country. Mm, well, the Taoiseach said they'd find space for everything. They'd build the houses, 100,000 houses, I think uh, he was talking about building, as well as giving these uh, tax breaks. And it's not an election coming up. <laughs> no, not at all. No, no, no. Um, moving away then to the subject of mobile phones, uh, Geraldine was in touch to say that she feels there needs to be a real crackdown on those who will use the mobile phones whilst driving. Geraldine was saying I was sitting at traffic lights the other day Michael Hmm. and a woman came around the corner holding her phone whilst trying to steer the car with one hand. Mm -hmm. If she had lost control of the car I shudder to think what might have happened but we would all have been innocent victims waiting at the traffic lights. Okay, nice. It's uh not worth thinking about, but we see people, we all see people on their phones all the time. I'm not sure there was too much surprise in the amount of uh, people who've been stopped by the Guardian, no. given how uh, frequent it is. Uh, let's turn our attention to uh, something uh, completely different and a, a very serious incident uh, that uh, occurred uh, in Blanchardstown. Independent councillor Nick Killian is on the line and uh, a young woman from Rathoth was making her way home uh, and uh, became the victim of uh, an attack, as I understand it. That's correct, and it's on this slip road out of Blanchardstown, and it's mainly for uh, the buses for the 109 and the 105, and indeed buses going to Ka- to Navan and Cavan and, and on further. And indeed, it's also used by Dublin Bus for the Dunboyne, uh, I think it's the 70 or the 170, whatever it's called now. Mm. Look, we have raised this before with Adrian McLaughlin, the area manager for Bus Airden, and they really haven't passed a blind bit of heed on us in relation to this. It's a dark, it's dreary. I certainly would not be happy getting a bus down there. And even from the perspective of walking from Blanchestown Shopping Centre, it's quite a walk. And I know that there's people in Rathos and in Dunchaplin mm. working part-time in Blanchestown. So I, I, I just note that from the paper today, Dublin bus or the NTA and Bus Airden, they're saying, oh, it's up to the local authority to to put the lights there, which is true. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's the wrong place to have the bus. Now, I know why the bus is there, mm. because if the bus goes into Blanchestown, because of traffic and everything gets delayed. But I just hope this young lady is, is, is all right. I haven't heard who it is locally yet. Yeah, but she's a young woman, and it's a terrible thing to say that anybody should act differently than anybody else, or to say that they should because they're female, or something like that Uh, but some of us are more vulnerable than others at certain times A lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A 20-year-old woman, uh, which uh, I believe uh, is the case in this story, uh, would seem to be vulnerable in an area like that. Uh, And very lucky, as it transpires, uh, she had a knife put to her neck and she was stabbed in the hand before this fella stole her handbag. And unfortunately, this is the second time. This happened during the summer as well. I mean, this is the second time that there's been an incident there where somebody um, last time was robbed at that particular bus stop in the month of June. Mm. And uh, to be fair to a young local chap here, Andrew Ralph, he he actually started a campaign uh, locally to petition to Pulsar to try and do something with this. And there's nobody passing a blind bit of heed. Now, I've already since morning sent an email to Adrian McLaughlin, again, the bus air manager, to please contact me and talk to us about it. We're sick and tired going to meeting bus air mm. and the NTA and telling us all our problems, telling the problems that we have with the bus services in the area. Mm. And it's it's really a box ticking exercise for But them. do they, do they need to move the bus stop, Nick? I mean, could they not no, just... No, it, it, it needs to be lit. And that's a matter well, between... But could they, could they leave it where it is, don't bother lighting it, and put a, a, a second bus stop, another bus stop, somewhere else? Well, that's a matter for them. I'm mm. not sure where you, you'd d- actually put it, whether you go back into Blanchestown mm. itself. This is about traffic, and it's about timing mm. and... Safety. Safety. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, the, the people that are now standing there are obviously not going to feel safe. Mm. Twice in the one year, there's an attack uh, on, on on two women. And is it a question oh, sorry, of lightning? I mean, the, the first night. the first attack you spoke about was in June. I imagine there June. was good. Yeah, I imagine there was good light. No, that was that was actually a summer summer yeah. summer summer evening. So there wasn't a question of lightning. No, it's just of lightning. In the, in the, in the, mm. It's a it's a it's a very quiet part of Blanchardstown mm. on that slip road. And when when you walk down there, you can see how isolated it is. And that's the problem, no doubt. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I feel I just hope this young woman is okay and yeah. is not too traumatized by yeah. what's happened. No, but I'm concerned right, yeah. from mm. the point of view of others. You know, the, the, as I said, there's residents from all over the county of Meath, and particularly at this time of year when people are shopping, and it's a very busy time of the year uh, with Blanchardstown mm-hmm. shopping centre being so close by, and I just hope it certainly doesn't happen again but certainly I know yeah. my colleagues and well, I maybe the I, shopping centre would have something to say about it as well because it couldn't be good for business no it couldn't mm. and the other thing that mm. I will do as well I mean I, I know uh, my colleagues in, in some of the, my colleagues in um, Fingal and I'm going to ask them to take a look at and see what they can do to get additional lighting put in place but Bus Erden 
and Dublin both have to come on board and help resolve this issue, you know, immediately and do something about it. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Independent Councillor Nick Killian. Now, let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts and some of uh, the calls that you have for us there, Marie. Yes, and just sticking to mobile phone use whilst driving. Mm. Uh, Listener says, if you're holding your mobile phone, having a chat, how can you be concentrating fully on the road and what is happening around you? You can't. I'd love to know the amount of accidents directly caused as a result of people on their mobiles. Well, it's uh, illegal and you're not allowed to do it. Uh, The, suppose, uh, difference is it is legal to do it hands-free. Yes. Uh, And does it have a a, a different impact on your concentration? Jim says, good to see that the Gardaí are taking action about mobile phone use whilst driving. Every second person you see almost on the roads now are on their phones. And as for those who text, if if you're sending texts, you have to take your eyes off the road, says Mm. Jim. Mm. And that's true it too. Would seem to be yes, true, yeah. mm-hmm. wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, another listener, um, Brian, just got in touch in relation to Brexit. Listening to your interview there, Michael, and I think a general election is inevitable. Says Brian. Mm-hmm. Where in the UK? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. In this instance, mm-hmm. he's saying in yeah. the UK, or maybe in both. <laughs> mm-hmm. Going back then mm-hmm. to your interview with David Cullinan um, from Sinn Fein in relation to Padraig being leaving that the was party. Last week, yes. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John uh, contacted us just to say that uh, listening in and. During the interview, David Cullinan says, says that he's a friend of Father Tobin's. But if you are a friend of somebody, Michael, surely you would stand up for them. He doesn't appear to be doing that. He's standing by the party. I feel that uh, Sinn Féin will regret the day that they got rid of Padder. Sinn Féin is not the same since Mary Lou took over and it never will be. Well, he may be right, he may be wrong. Uh, I don't know, but I can tell you that me, the West, is going to be one of of uh, the closest watch constituencies really in the will. next general election because Padre Hobain has decided now that he will be standing as an independent. Sinn Féin undoubtedly will put a candidate up against him. Is it a personal vote or a Sinn Féin vote that Padre has been enjoying over the last uh, what is this uh, number of years anyway? Yes. A, couple, a, few, a few dull terms at this stage. It's going to be interesting mm-hmm. because in Louth mm-hmm. we're going to have the same scenario with Peter Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. from the Fine Gael yes. side. Mm-hmm. We're going to have an independent again as a result of you know the abortion and mm. fallout. Exactly. So mm. it'll be interesting in both of those constituencies. Mm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. See if the party, yeah. the different mm. party mm. vote mm. holds yeah. up. Well, that's it. Uh, and we know that uh, he'll be facing uh, Fergus O'Dowd anyway. That's uh, right. And uh, there may be another Fine Gael candidate uh, who he'll be facing uh, in terms of getting the seat. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, we will indeed. Thanks for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The British Prime Minister will appeal directly to business leaders in London today to support uh, the withdrawal agreement, which she says has been agreed in full. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down, joins us again to talk about this. Uh, What do you make of Mrs May's position that this has been agreed in full? Well, Mrs May can appeal to business leaders, but I can assure you she will not get this deal through Parliament. It's quite clear that our own 10 MPs will vote for it, and at least 30 Conservatives. 
I mean, this deal is dead in the water. We need to go back to Europe and we need to get a better deal. This simply is not all. Why are you working against the wishes of your constituents? Uh, All the business groups in Northern Ireland, uh, the Ulster Farmers Association, have come out and asked that this deal be supported. Well, what I would say to you is that they haven't thought it through fully. The reality is that 70, 75% of the goods that go from Northern Ireland go, through, go to the rest of the United Kingdom. And we simply cannot put up a tariff barrier or any regulatory barrier between us and the rest of the country. It wouldn't be tolerated in the Irish Republic. It wouldn't be tolerated here. We simply cannot have a situation where the rules that apply to one part of the UK are different from the other. And I think when people start to read the document and understand it fully, they will come to the same conclusion as the DUP. Well, people are interpreting it differently, it seems, in that they're suggesting that Northern Ireland has been offered a deal of having your cake and eating it too, that you'll be able to continue in a customs union with uh, the European Union and uh, there will be no restriction on trade with the rest of the United Kingdom. Well, I mean, that's simply not true. Uh, if, if they don't reach agreement on a trade deal, we will be left effectively in the single market. And remember, that the, the single market that really counts is not uh, the European single market, but that pertains to the, all of the United Kingdom, where I make the point that three quarters of our trade uh, is done with the rest of the UK. There's also a very important political position as well. You can't treat one part of a country different from another. We effectively become a third party in the mm. European Union. We almost become a, sort of a vassal state of Europe. And that can be in perpetuity because there's no way out. It's the well, famous Hotel California. Well, the, you can the, check the, out, but you can't leave. The, the, the political argument uh, is undoubtedly a legitimate one, whether people agree with it or not. But it is a legitimate argument in that you're being asked to be allowed to be treated differently if it gets to that stage. The politicians, uh, the senior politicians say it will never get to that stage. This is just an insurance policy, uh, but that if it does, there will be no restriction on that trade east-west. There'll be different regulations, there'll be different control as a blank check because Europe will continue to pass new regulatory regime. But of course, we will no longer have a seat at the table. We won't have any Euro- European members of parliament. We won't have any commissioners. We won't sit in the council of ministers. So it's the worst of all worlds. And we're sending a blank check. Now, you're saying no one hopes that this will actually happen. But the reality is, experience has shown that once you buy into something like this, it's almost impossible to get out. And would, for instance, Clare allow itself to be, or Galway to be treated differently from the rest of Ireland in terms of its trade deals? No, it wouldn't. And this is a, a fundamental breach of the constitutional status of this part of the United Kingdom. And it's a very slippery slope. It's a thin edge of a wedge, and it simply has to be headed off at the pass now. Now, there can be a deal done. There can be a Canada Plus deal done where we can trade with Europe without any difference between any part of the United Kingdom. Mm. I know, and you know why Europe won't do that, because if they did, the Czechs, the French, maybe even the Slovaks would say, hold on here, we can get out on the same basis, we'll do the same. They have to make an example of the United Kingdom. Well, there's also the issue of having spent two and a half years negotiating this and the negotiations are over, uh, approved by the Cabinet, uh, and now people like yourself looking to renegotiate, Europe says it won't do that. So what will happen? 
Well, remember, ten members of the cabinet spoke against it. Two have resigned. In fact, there have been seven ministerial resignations within this last week. Six of them have quoted the, the danger to the constitutional status of Northern Ireland as one of the main reasons for the resignation. We have to go back to Barney and say, look, this deal cannot be acceptable for this reason. And they need to come back with a deal that gives total autonomy to the United Kingdom. We also need to go to the European Court of Justice, which there's no clarity on where, where we stand with it. There are so many aspects of this deal which are unsatisfactory, and we all know why it's happening. Europe could do a deal which, which uh, would help the United Kingdom ease out of the European Union, but it won't, mm. because it has to make, make whip us around and make absolutely certain that no other country dreams of leaving their monolith. Mm, and five ministers are meeting today looking to reword or renegotiate what has, we're told, been agreed. Uh, but this isn't going anywhere, is it? Well, this is the European Commission's uh, attempt at Brexit. It's not satisfactory. They knew it wasn't satisfactory mm. when they wrote it. It hasn't been agreed by Parliament. And, you know, we'll be talking about this mm. very many times behind Christmas, Michael. But what I can tell you is everyone, every political commentator in the country has said this deal cannot get through Westminster, mm. whether the DUP supported it or not, by the way, because there are so many Conservative MPs who are extremely unhappy yeah. with mm-hmm. what it's doing to our constitutional position. Uh, and the Labour Party seems set to oppose it too. Uh, so what then? What then is, well, there's two options. Go back and get another deal or a hard Brexit. Now, I think the one thing that everybody's mm. agreed on, North and South, is that the, the least uh, acceptable option is a hard Brexit. We, no, nobody wants that. We can do a Canada plus deal, which is the best of all worlds. We get out of Europe, but maintain a good relationship, mm. trading relationship with the rest of Europe. That has to be the way forward. Okay, and but yet, you're giving us two of what might be actually four options. Uh, one is... Crash out, hard border, nobody wants that, as you say. Uh, the other is go back, renegotiate. Europe says, no, we won't do that. Uh, there's also then a third option of a, a general election and a, a fourth option of uh, people's vote or a second referendum. Mm. Well, Michael, you've obviously been reading the weekend papers because you're absolutely right. There are two other options. An election, we, we have what's called the fixed, uh, the fixed Term Parliament Act here, so it's very actually very hard to get an election uh, within the next three years because both Conservative and Labour would have to vote for it. The people's vote sounds, uh, on the face of it, sounds a great idea, but there's no way that the legislation can be passed and a referendum can be held before March the 29th, 2019. It isn't practical, and we don't do what the Irish do. We don't do the best out of three. We, you know, basically, we put it to the people. 17.4 million people voted to leave. Mm. The biggest democratic exercise in the history of the United Kingdom. We've made that decision, and we don't have a history in the Constitution of the United Kingdom of going back and trying again. Yeah, well, but you don't have a history of it. You haven't done it, but you might do it. Tony Blair said, well, well, ask, ask them again. The difficulty, as you know from your experience with various European Union treaties, you're talking at least two years to, to pass the legislation and to have a referendum. And, and, and the, the difficulty I see that we're facing a situation where it's almost just four months away till we actually leave the European Union. So I think from a practical mm. point of view, that is, is impossible. But then what would happen, Michael, then, if that, as we would expect, came back and they voted to leave again? Mm. Where, well, where do you go from there? I mean, I'm not sure that it is four months. It's four months before you go into what they call a transition period up to the end of 2020 or possibly 2022. So it might be four years before you leave uh, the European Union. Yes, but, 
but but the the the, the, uh, the article is moved on the 29th of March, and mm. at the minute, because of the inflexibility of Europe, there's no way around that. So we will be out of Europe in one shape or another uh, within roughly four months now. So time's not on our side, and I personally don't think it's practical. But also. You know, when 17.4 million people have voted for a certain decision, it would plunge the country into constitutional chaos. So we said, look, we don't... You didn't know what you were talking about or you didn't understand it, so we're going back again. Mm. So I do accept it's a very difficult situation, but I think we need to go back to Europe and say, look, folks, this is not a, this deal will not happen. OK, if we go back I, to the four options again, uh, you're saying that a referendum and an election, uh, that neither of them really are options... Uh, Europe is saying renegotiate isn't an option, so that leaves the last option, uh, which is to crash out in a hard border. Uh, are you willing to accept that if that is the case? Well, if it happens, yes, it happens, but I say it's definitely no one's first preference. And I think with a bit of work, we can make a success of a hard Brexit. But I mean, let's not go there because of all the complexities involved. Uh, let's say to Europe, you look, you know, you need us mm. as much as we need you. One in every seven German cars are sold, manufactured in Germany, is sold in the United Kingdom. The trade, there's a £90 billion uh, surplus of trade between Europe mm. and the United Kingdom. So they, and they the people trading in Northern Ireland are saying this is going to do irreparable damage. Mrs May is saying to you, look, you have four years to solve it if you accept the terms that are in front yeah. of you now. Yeah, yeah, yes, I'm, Mike, that would sound wonderful if we could get out of the arrangements uh, within those four years. But once we sign up to these arrangements, the only way we can get out is both Europe and the United Kingdom agree. Now, obviously, that, that encourages Europe to sit on their hands and do nothing, mm. because it, it can't be done unilaterally. Now, the, the game changer would for Europe to say is that Britain could, the United Kingdom could leave on its own basis. It could leave without the agreement of Europe, but they're refusing to do that. And that keeps us within the Customs Union. And but even if that's agreed, it still leaves Northern Ireland within the regularly framework, framework of the single market. So we could be stuck in that for, for centuries. Mm. Uh, do you think uh, there'll be a leadership contest uh, at uh, a minimum? Yes, I think I understand there's 24 MPs have put their name forward and, and she need, they need 48 for, mm-hmm. for uh, election of a leader. I, I think one way or the other there'll be a new Prime Minister. Either there will be uh, the 48 names will be obtained for a leadership contest or more likely the deal will fail. And if the deal fails, I think it's inevitable that the Prime Minister would have to resign at that point. And therefore, there will be a new leader at number 10 within the next two or three months. And what about the next week? Because uh, the EU Council Summit is uh, scheduled On for Sunday. Sunday. Uh, so what yep. will we be talking about this day next week? Well, I think we'll be talking about the fact that I think the European, the 27, will agree to the deal. I think that is, that is pretty clear with some reservations. And then they'll send it back to London with Theresa May to get it passed probably sometime in the second week of December. And unless something dramatic happens, that deal will not get through. Because remember, the Prime Minister's majority uh, and with the DUP is three. So therefore, there's at least 24. If 24 Conservative MPs have signed a letter publicly asking for her to resign, you can say that those 24 are going to vote against it. Uh, there's also some Labour and Scottish uh, Conservatives who also vote against it for different reason. So this deal simply can't get through. It's impossible. So but what is the Prime Minister playing at? No one knows. Maybe she wants to go down fighting. 
maybe she wants to prompt the hard Brexit. Nobody knows, but certainly this deal just simply can't go through. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you as always. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for Southdown. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the ongoing feud uh, between two criminal gangs in Drogheda with Labour councillor P.O. Smith. Good morning, P.O., and uh, thanks uh, morning, for Michael. joining us. People continue uh, to be on tender hooks in the town. Yeah, people are still on tender hooks. Uh, I mean, reported incidents are very low, and uh, the guards do seem to have. Uh, got on top of the situation at the moment. Uh, but still, there's a lot of anxiety around town. I think even just people going out socially the weekend, still the topic of conversation. Uh, and you can still see anxiety in, in, in people's voices and around around this whole issue. Mm. Uh, and we've been hearing of uh, people coming into the town from outside of uh, the country to support different gangs. Uh, what have you been hearing about that? Uh, uh, how many people have arrived in Drogheda, in your estimation, at this stage? Well, I've heard different things. I've heard numbers ranging from uh, seven people right up to 700 people. And I think that just goes to show the anxiety that people have around the, around this whole issue. Uh, you know, I, I haven't heard any concrete figures, definite figures, uh, but certainly I have heard anecdotally that people have come into town uh, from the UK. Mm. And people, i sure, have gone to ground as well. Have they given the strong guard presence in the town? Yeah, well, it appears that way. I mean, there is a very strong guard of presence in, in the town, and uh, that adds to the the level of, I suppose, comfort that people have. My fear is that, you know, how long are we going to have that guard of presence in Drada? And when things die down eventually, which they always do, uh, what's going to happen then next in, in relation to addressing the outstanding issues uh, in our town? Because it isn't just in the last six months that this type of stuff is happening. A lot of this stuff has gone on under the radar mm. and it has been ignored, uh, in my view, uh, by the state and by successive governments uh, because of the fact that it is under the radar. Well, we've been talking uh, about it for so long. Uh, you've been on this programme in the local papers uh, voicing your concerns in relation to the level of drug dealing, the level of uh, drug users, uh, the gangs, uh, the power and uh, the danger that they bring to the town for a long period of time. It exploded a couple of weeks ago and that's what's brought it to this level of interest on a national basis and has brought Drogheda into the limelight. But as you say, it's an ongoing problem and I suppose in terms of that particular problem, there's been very little achieved, hasn't there? Well, there has been very little achieved. and In fact, it's got worse, and, and that's the point I'm making. I mean, it's amazing to think that, uh, you know, I think it was about 10, 12 years ago, a rapid system of CCTV cameras were put up around various estates in the, in the town, including Moneymore, and they don't work. Uh, like, Low County Council have responsibility for, for monitoring the system, and... Uh, you know, reporting to the guards or giving information to the mm-hmm. guards on request by on Garda Shiakona. In my view, <clears throat> uh, the very fact that these CCTV systems don't work is is uh, condemnation of all of us in Low County Council for allowing that to happen for so long. And number two, I think the guards should have full control over it <clears throat> so that they have, <clears throat> excuse me, so that they can see things in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> but furthermore, we're ignoring the social issues that are, that exist in, in in many estates that give rise to these things because. <clears throat> We have got disadvantaged areas. We have got families who are, some families now, I'm not talking about all families, some families who are in trouble. We have got young children as, as young as 11, 12 and 14 who are getting mixed up in, in, in this type of uh, gang system and being used uh, 
and yet we haven't got the capacity to intervene to help those children find a meaning in life other than being involved in a gang. And as they grow older, they become more hardened. And then when they get into their late teens and early 20s, uh, they're lost to us and, and they end up in the criminal justice system, which does cost more money mm. in the long run. Why don't so, we have the means? Uh, I mean, is it that we don't have the desire? We don't have the desire. Mm. That's exactly it. We don't yeah. have the desire. And it's just that crowd money more. That's the attitude. Well, you see, what people don't realise is, and I said this to other people, uh, there are fantastic people in money more. Mm. I, like, for example, one of the highest leaving certificates ever in Ireland was achieved by a student in money more who got the J.P. McManus Award. I know people who live in money more who are self-employed, who are, who are engineers, who are phlebotomists, who are drafts people. Yeah very well-educated, great people. You get a small section to choose to go a different route. But, it, then, mm, but is that oh, the yeah. attitude towards everybody in Money More? It's just that share in Money More? Yeah, well, I, I mm. think, you see, what happens is you get a, 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 a housing estate gets a negative bias attached mm. to it. Like, mm. I mean, I've had people say to me, I'm not going to put down Money More on my CV, and I say, why not? Be proud of where you come from. Uh, you know, and, uh, like, the problem is that sometimes employers might get a, a negative view of, of what happens there. And this needs to be addressed <clears throat> because the best of people live in money more. And I know a lot of them and I'm friends with a lot of them. Uh, but equally, another disadvantaged area is we also have to start looking at how we're going to get in there earlier. I mean, mm. we can't have a system for CCTV uh, not to be working. We mm. need to put in place a system. And we've known for years that, it's, uh, that it hasn't been working. And I mean, literally years. And for years, we've been hearing from people, they'd ring in and say, oh, sure, they burned a car out underneath the camera in yeah. Moneymore because there's nobody looking at the cameras or they're not working. Yeah, and now we, we've, the latest thing we've been told is that because of the new data protection laws, there's issues over the image rights of people. And I, sometimes I think it's just red tape gone mad uh, because, I mean, what we should be prioritising is the health of the community mm. and doing everything we can possibly do to ensure that the community flourishes. And we have failed in that regard, both as a county council and me as a councillor to some extent, and to, a state, uh, to the state that we live in. We have failed and we can't keep failing. Because if we keep failing and keep ignoring, the problem will grow and grow and grow. Mm. And I think then it'll get so well, we, big. We will continue to fail if we don't want to succeed. And that comes back to what I was saying about the desire. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. I mean, like, you know, all of these things cost money. I mean, people, mm. <clears throat> people are losing confidence in the guards, not because the guards themselves are not capable of doing things. It's because the guards aren't resourced. I mean, I've spoken to individual community guards and they have great desire, great enthusiasm. They've you know, great ways and means of trying to help people. But I mean, if you're stuck behind a desk uh, because the commissioner or the state are saying that you can't have all the time to get out and get into a community, how are you going to build up a relationship with people in the community? That's that's an issue uh, that we have to address. And the guards uh, in Drogheda are understaffed, are they? I believe the guards in Drogheda are understaffed. Is, is there a problem in getting guards to work in Drogheda? I don't believe there's a problem in getting guards to work in Drogheda. <clears throat> I think if you look over the last seven years, there has been a lot of guards coming out of Temple Moor that have gone to Dundalk. I mean, it's instructive to think that the uh, infrastructure in the Garda station and in Dundalk has been upgraded on two occasions. Mm. I mean, you can walk into the car park and draw the Garda station, there's no CCTV there. You know, like the pers- if you look at Sligo, for example, which mm. is a smaller town than Drogheda, yet they've got more personnel over there. But for whatever the reason, there is reluctance to work in Drogheda, is there? No, I don't think there's reluctance to work in Drada. I mean, I think it's when, come, when guards are coming out of Temple Moor, they've been directed to certain areas. And I don't know how that happens or why that happens. 
Uh, now, we have got a number over the last couple of years, which is good. But, I mean, well, the biggest town in the country, and, I mean, the bottom line is there is a drugs market in the town. Mm. That's why people are, are feuding, because there's money to be made. And we have to address it. To address it, we also need to have a structured policing system in place that's resourced, well-resourced. And that's ongoing rather than actually rea- reactive. So it's, we're looking at how do we solve problems rather than how we react to problems. Yeah, we were talking not so long ago about how someone could walk into Money More with uh, some sort of a, a firearm and start shooting five times uh, at a, a house in the estate, uh, how that could happen in a, a town of this size, uh, something which completely eludes me and I'm sure many people for that matter. Uh, but what about uh, the quality of policing in the town? I think the quality of policing is very good. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> I think we've got some very clever uh, police officers in the town and certainly the superintendent uh, that has come to Drada over the last couple of years has initiated changes. Now we've got a, drugs, a specific drugs unit in Drada uh, and there is heavy emphasis on community policing. I think the problem is that we need to have that desire you're talking about to finance uh, community policing at a high level. Uh, it does take a lot of money, but we do know that community policing works. We have evidence from it across the USA and in Canada uh, where it reduces antisocial behaviour and serious crime significantly, which in turn has a saving on the exchequer because we have mm. less people going to jail for long term. Mm. Uh, but then again, it comes back to the word you used earlier on. Is there a desire in the levers of power in government to address this issue? Or not? And I don't believe there is a desire at this point in time. Mm. And you've painted a, a picture of the way people from Money More are perceived, how you perceive people there, uh, and the vast majority of them very good people. A lot of them are your friends, and you spoke very highly of them, and quite rightly so. And uh, I think you could tell this story of almost any disadvantaged area in the country, uh, but uh, that there's a small number of people who act differently, and that gives uh, the whole state a bad name, to the point where people don't want to put their address on their CVs when they're applying for work and so on because of the attitude and that attitude of, well, they're only from money more when it comes to problems. Uh, do you think that's a, a, an attitude that is within Angarda Shiakana? No, certainly not. <clears throat> uh, I've had direct experience with the community policing unit uh, over the last couple of years in relation to addressing some antisocial behaviour issues. And I've seen uh, young enthusiastic guards coming out and understanding really understanding the difficulties that young people have had in relation to the first 10 years of life. How a lot, of, a lot of people who do get end up getting into trouble had no real choices in life. They were brought into a family system that was stressful. Maybe the parents were, were, were problems with alcohol or drugs, etc. And they didn't get a great start in life. And they've seen Gard going out of their way to try and help people in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great understanding that guard, modern guards have. It isn't a kind of old 1940 or 50s attitude that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so I think they're very progressive in the way they think around these these problems. Mm. Uh, and in terms of tackling the drug problem, uh, is it because of resources uh, that uh, instead of getting on top of it, the problem has got worse? Well, I think we have to look at this, how gangs operate. So, you know, gangs operate on, on, a, on a kind of an iceberg system where at the bottom of the iceberg you've got, as I said earlier on, 11, 12-year-olds, uh, right up to 15, 16, 17-year-olds who have been used and abused by gangs. The middle order guys you have are kind of, you know, uh, regular drug users uh, or other people involved in crime who 
have got into debt to these gangs and then, you know, feel under threat to do certain things. Mm. And then on the top of the system, you've got really the higher order guys who who basically are controlling everything and pulling the strings. And to some extent, their income is based similar to what a, the average pub would be. You've got weekend users and you've got regular users. And, you know, we've got to put in system, a policing system that addresses that whole area. But it takes different types of policing to address the three different segments. Uh, it isn't just taking young people off the street and criminalising them and, and, and uh, imprisoning them. We've got to intervene early to persuade them that there is a different way of life. In the middle order, we've got to actually address some of the, the drug issues that people have and the antisocial behaviour issues people have and give them a choice between going and getting counselling, key working, family support, etc., or else going through the legal system. It has to be a very specific choice that they have. They can't pick and choose what happens. And then lastly, the guards then have got to get the resources <clears throat> to address the higher order criminals. Uh, on an ongoing basis. And I think if we can look at that structure, uh, then we can make progress. And what do you mean by resources? Do you mean manpower or do you mean extra power? I mean manpower. I mean uh, money because, mm. you know, surveillance and intelligence work costs money, costs it's overtime. We also need to have better response times. So one car going around the division isn't going to work uh, in, the, in the town the size of Drada. Um, you know, it's very easy to create a diversion on the south side of town and do something on the north side of town uh, and get away with it. So we have to look at how our response time, times are. That has to be resourced and funded. Uh, <clears throat> and there's no point in burying our heads in the sand mm-hmm. and thinking that uh, it is sufficiently resourced because it isn't. But even with extra resource, do the Gardaí need more powers? Well, if you look at the powers of the Gardaí, Gardaí have at the moment, we've got some of the strongest anti-gang legislation mm. in Europe at the moment. Now, well, I, I gather there's an awful lot of people who could name all of the people who are involved in the dispute. Yeah, well, this is a question that Jed Nash is raising with the, the minister this week. We have powers where an individual guard can actually come along and say that Mike Reid, for example, is in control of a, a, a criminal organisation or is involved in a criminal organisation. And those powers allow us to be able to arrest that individual and bring them up in front of uh, non-jury courts. Now, uh, the number of times that legislation has been used in that regard over the last two or three years is zero. So my my understanding is that Jed will be challenging uh, Charlie uh, Flanagan in relation to this during the week to find out why is that the case. Uh, Does the laws need to be uh, amended in any way whatsoever? Or is there better training needed? Uh, Why is reluctance in the DPP to use those laws? Uh, because they are very powerful. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's Labour Party councillor in Drogheda, P.O. Smith. Michael Michael Reed on on The Joint Committee on uh, Children and Youth Affairs has published a report on tackling childhood obesity, suggesting that research would be funded to identify obesity hotspots. It also says uh, that targets should be set for reducing the inequalities that underpin childhood obesity, that there should be interventions to address issues such as food poverty, and that youth workers should be supported in teaching young people about healthy eating and more active
alternative lifestyles. These are some of uh, the 20 headline recommendations uh, the committee hopes to help schools, communities and families make healthier choices for Ireland's young people. We're joined by Catherine Riley, who's policy manager with uh, the Irish Heart Foundation. Good morning, Catherine, and thank you for joining us. Uh, the Irish Heart Foundation uh, played a, a role in this. Uh, you appeared before the committee indeed made uh, a very extensive uh, submission to the committee on this. In fact, I think a lot of the recommendations that the committee is making echo what you had been saying to them in the first instance. Good morning, Michael. Yes, um, the Irish Heart Foundation very much welcomed this report. We were fortunate to be able to present it to the committee earlier on this year in April and to make a comprehensive submission to go along with that. And we were able to assist the committee members right along the process with the provision of information um, along a broad spectrum of the issues that were coming up with some of the other presenters, whether it be on advertising and marketing and fast food outlets around schools. Mm. We were able to provide some of the information around that. But we were very supportive and very happy with the um, report that was published last week and the 20 recommendations. I think the, the, what we need to consider, particularly on, at the outset, is the first recommendation is the need for a whole system approach to be taken in relation to the implementation of policies that relate to tackling childhood obesity. It is a whole system approach that is needed. And we, were, we welcome that it was the Rothes Committee on Children and Youth Affairs that also took this on board because... It took a committee that wasn't just health, that wasn't just education skills or communications or transport. It took a committee to take an oversight view, to look, to bring in all stakeholders from all these different departments and sectors and to bring all that expertise together to give this whole system recommendation um, to try and deal with this crisis that we have in Ireland currently. I think the recommendation to make home economics a compulsory subject for secondary school students is a very clever way of teaching people to understand uh, how food works when we consume it. Uh, but talk to me about water, uh, because uh, there's a recommendation in this report to increase access to free drinking water. The Heart Foundation made the same recommendation. What's the problem? Well, in, it, this is actually also stems from the obesity plan that was published two years ago. It was to make free potable water available in all learning centres, so not just schools, be creches, um, other centres like mm. these centres where young people are there. Now, the Irish Heart Foundation a number of years ago did a small-scale sample research and we found that drinking water wasn't available in all schools at that time. And in some of the schools that we surveyed at that time, um, it was actually easier to get fizzy drinks mm. than free drinking water. So as I said, that was a number of years ago and it was a small sample of schools. But currently the Department of Education is not aware. There has been no audit done of whether or not there is free drinking water available in all schools in a way that's accessible. Now all new buildings have to have that available Mm. and we accept the Department Under planning regulations, uh, it would be illegal not to have free drinking water. But uh, I mean, this in itself uh, sounds at odds with what you would expect, whether it's legal or not. Yes, exactly. And... It's something that we've been calling on the Department of Education to to do, to have some sort of audit, to make sure that those facilities are there and that they are accessible to children and young people at all times. Um, The Department has said to us previously in a number um, of various different correspondences that they're not aware of any situation where um, a school doesn't have free drinking water available, but if they are, if a school doesn't have drinking Mm. water, free drinking water, they can avail of the, um, you know, emergency work schemes to get work done, to get the free drinking water. However, the problem that I would identify with that is, and we see it you know, recently with all the, the different crises with school buildings, is 
if schools have uh, a very pressing infrastructural issue, they will obviously apply for that issue to be addressed under the capital works or emergency work schemes. Drinking water will obviously fall down their list of priorities. So that's why the onus needs to be on the Department of Education to do this audit. And this audit can go hand in hand with other audits that the committee here recommends in terms Mm. of physical activity facilities to make sure they're available. It should be, the Department of Education should be, or yeah, Department of Education Mm -hmm. needs to be looking at the whole school approach and whether the environment is conducive to healthy eating, physical activity and making sure children are supportive, supported in their school lives to make the healthier choices to have a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. That, and that yeah. also supports you know, the whole economics issue that you considered. It can't just be one issue taken in isolation. It has to be everything taken together. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, perhaps uh, it would be right to ask what do you do if you're in school and you're thirsty and you don't have money if there isn't free drinking water uh, available. But uh, in terms of obesity, the concern is that if you're in a position where you have to buy something to drink uh, and the option is water or a sugary drink, uh, well, the other might seem more value for money, if nothing else. Yeah, children yeah. automatically will, will likely go for a, a sugar-sweetened drink or, you know, a brand that they will want, and, you know, any of those, you know, whether it be Lucozade Energy, some of those drinks, they're likely to go for something um, like that, that, mm. that, you know, it will also have detrimental effects to their or impact on their health. And then that also leads into another recommendation that the committee made in terms of banning vending machines in schools, Mm. in terms of removing those unhealthy options from schools to make the environment, as I said, as a whole more healthy. You know, there's no, if you're Mm -hmm. making home economics compulsory or you want to teach children the value of food, how it works, Mm. you know, then they're coming out of the classroom being learning about the food pyramid, but then they're faced with, uh, tuck shops, vending machines, yeah. then they're seeing um, shops yeah. outside their door. Uh, and uh, if we can talk just very uh, briefly about home economics and understanding food and food poverty, uh, it's odd, uh, but quite often uh, the cheapest choice is healthy eating. I mean, if you were to get a, a roast or something like that, rather than going to a fast food outlet, uh, you'd probably feed a family for far less. Uh, but when people are, are in a situation where cash is tight, uh, they end up spending on what seems to be more expensive? Um, well, we've always said that um, the pursuit of a healthy diet can be, can be seen to be hindered by four A's, accessibility, awareness, availability and affordability. So it has to be taken all together. Mm. So very often cheaper food, it, you know, the, the, the calorie dense but nutrient poor food is actually cheaper. Mm. Um, and we also have to consider when we look at um, disadvantaged communities, the availability and the access to some of those shops that sell fresh produce that might sell, you know, your your roast chicken, they might not be able to get, you know, be readily access those mm-hmm. those um, those shops, for example. And we find that in some disadvantaged communities, you know, there isn't a, a family car, so you might be relying on public transport or taxis to bring you to a shop. Sure. Um, and it might, as I said, just be a small convenience shop that mightn't have that fresh produce. So you might just be going for the stuff that you can fill your freezer with, that you can feed your children with quickly. Mm. Um, and, and families are under that pressure. And we often don't see that. And that's something that we want to highlight. And we're very, you know, we, we recognise that the committee in their recommendations look at the issue around, you know, socioeconomic inequalities and childhood obesity. And we see that through every year, the growing up in Ireland um, statistics that show that there okay. is greater childhood obesity in disadvantaged communities. OK, Catherine, I have to leave it there because I've run over time. But thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Catherine Riley, Policy Manager with uh, the Irish Heart Foundation, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 